Hello and welcome to the Faber podcast. My name is George Miller, and my guest in this programme is actor-turned-thriller writer John Gordon Sinclair. John's debut, 70 Times 7, is, as John Mullen said in The Independent, a fast-moving, wise-cracking story about two Republican brothers from Newry caught up in the Troubles, about supergrassies, double agents, paramilitary brutality, and SAS summary justice. It's 1992, still half a dozen years before the Good Friday Agreement, and although the peak of the Troubles may be in the past, there's still a lot of bad blood and many long memories. Danny Maguire, for one, has scores to settle. He operates as a lone hitman, out to avenge his brother's death eight years earlier. Death was what Danny did for a living, Sinclair writes. He didn't like what he did, but he was good at it. Things get complicated, though, when a top-secret file listing informers' identities is stolen by the IRA, and Danny is sent to Alabama to put one behind the ear of the man at the top of that list, Finn O'Hanlon, a.k.a. the Thevshi, or Ghost. The problem is, Finn claims he knows who killed Danny's brother. Along the way, we'll encounter American crime bosses and petty hoodlums, the women who get caught up in the violence, and a pair of wise-cracking drug dealers called Ardell and Hud. When we met, I began, inevitably perhaps, by asking John about making the transition from actor to writer. It's been a great void of dis- of discovery f- for me writing this book, and 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 so many things have happened along the way that I've thought that I've really enjoyed. Uh, um, and it is it's discovering things like I, I, when I set out, I never thought, well, I'm doing this because I'm in control of the characters and I'm in control of what they do and I'm in you know control of how the story goes. I, I wasn't really thinking along those lines. I was just thinking in terms of the story. But as it's evolved and as you get closer to finishing the book. That that's when I kind of became aware of. It was down to me really what to do, and that was that was very satisfying. That was a, a a great feeling to be the director, and you're directing the shots. You know, you're 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 directing the shots. You're giving the characters the lines. You're, you're you know you're setting the scene. You're, you're, so you're the you're the prop buyer. You're everything really there is to do with it. And the the budget is limitless. And the budget is limitless. That's the great thing. Yeah, that's why I remember someone talking about radio and saying, you know, the and and because I always love radio. I love I listen to it all the time. I got a lot of ideas from listening to the radio. And I remember someone saying the great thing about drama on the radio is the, the budget is limitless. Really, you can have you know if there's a. A scene with Genghis Khan or something like that. You can have, you know, five hundred horsemen galloping over the the mountain. To realise that you're 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 not limited really by a budget and be able to kind of create whatever you want is a, it's an amazing thing. It's uh, I, I didn't as I, I again as I say when I set out I didn't really realise these things, but as I've now that I've done it and I've gone through the process, I. I I can see the joy in that, and also making people feel something. I'm, I'm probably seeing things that writers have said throughout, you know, for a hundred years, and it, it sounds, you, you know, a bit trite or whatever. But when you discover something for yourself, it's um, it's a great feeling. Um, the biggest satisfaction I've found so far is making people feel something by reading the words. You know, like feel emotions, and one of the aims I had with a book, because I love crime fiction, it's what I take on holiday, it's what I kind of read to relax and stuff, but there's been very few books that I've read that have actually made me cry or, you know, um, you know, I've empathised with a lot of the characters, but not to the point where I've felt very sad or whatever, when, if they've been killed or anything ha- anything's happened to them. So one of the 
aims I had when I set out to write the book was to have crime fiction but that had characters that, that hopefully along the way you would feel things for and, and a range of emotions, not just the, the thrill of gunfights and chases and all that, but actually, you know, feel moved by these characters and and having people that are now that have read it and come back to me and say oh you know that I got to that bit and I, I was crying and stuff it's just the most I, again I, I didn't realise how great that makes you feel <laughs> and that, but that gives you a really tough challenge doesn't it because not only have you got to have the snappy dialogue and the pace and the plot and the incidents you've also got to somehow develop the characters enough for people to care yeah and and the, the the starting point for me, I have to say, was um, the dialogue. I found that the easiest part of it. And in uh, early on, I sent it out to people saying, "Am I wasting my time here?" And quite a few came back to me and said, "The ones that were kind enough to read it came back and said, the dialogues, it's great, but where are they?'" You know, I said, "Oh yeah, God, I haven't really, I haven't." So that was something that I, I had to make a conscious effort to spend some time on because I, I hadn't given them much of a sense of place or time and stuff like that. So initially I found that quite difficult. But then once you'd set it up, once you'd set up where they were, it, that again, it became it, it was, became a lot easier. And was, was there some kind of idea right back at the start, some little seed from which the whole thing grew, some idea or image that that sparked it all off? There, um, there definitely were. There was a, there was a few things that, that were, there's probably three things I would say that were the key moments in the kind of genesis of the book. One of them was, slightly odd one, is that people kept um, mistaking me for Tim Robbins, the actor. Which is really weird. It's happened to me in New York. Even my mum, when I was watching a film with her, said, you know, you told me you were hardly in this film. And I said, I haven't been on yet. And she said, well, who's that? I said, it's Tim Robbins. <laughs> All right, OK. And I had an idea. Initially, I was going to write a film script that was about a case of mistaken identity. And, and that gave me... The, 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 one of the guys lived in America and one of the guys lived in... At, at, at that time, it was going to be Scotland because I wanted it to be a kind of vehicle for the two of us. But um, as soon as I started writing the book, that kind of got pushed aside. But that was the initial idea for it, and, and it was Brothers. It was going to be called Brothers. And then when I decided to set it in Northern Ireland, when I, when I knew it was going to be a book, I set it in Northern Ireland, and the whole thing of mistaken identity kind of went by the wayside. I was reading an article in The Telegraph about the British government trying to f save money over there because the political situation in Northern Ireland was becoming a lot more bearable for everybody, really. In order to try and save some money, they were looking for ways to cut the security forces' budget and stuff like that. And they was, it was costing £250,000 per informer to rehouse them and give them a new identity. And so they decided to give the, the details about the informers to the IRA, knowing that the IRA would kill them and therefore they wouldn't have to pay the £250,000. And so it's it was, a cost-saving clean-up operation. It was a cost-saving. It was such a cynical cost-saving uh, uh, clean-up situation. And 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 this article was about it. this kind of had been uncovered, and there was some court case happening about it. So that gave me another one of the main ideas for the story behind it of the Republicans being handed this list by the special branch of informers, so that in order that they would. Uh, then kill them, and the, and the government would have to would save some money. So that was one of the other sort of big ideas for it. The, the third one I remember was I was reading Blood Meridian at the time, Cormac McCarthy book, 
I, I kind of got halfway through the book and, and had to put it, I thought I'm going to have to walk away from this and not read anymore because I'm finding it just too disturbing and, and th- th- there was no r- redeeming factors about it whatsoever apart from the fact it was well written but the story itself I, I found pretty tough. It's, I mean, it's, it's unrelentingly violent, isn't it's it? It's just unrelentingly violent, yes. And 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 for no apparent reason, it's so random and, and, and cruel and vicious and disturbing. And I I thought, I'm just I'm going to have to leave this, actually. I knew when I put it down, I thought, I know this is going to haunt me now for the rest of my life if I don't actually just finish it, and then I can see if I can put it away. But in the meantime, I, I, I kind of went online and found an interview that Cormac McCarthy had done about the book and they said to him why you know why did you write it really and he said that he was so concerned about the way violence was portrayed in movies and on the television and stuff like that that he wanted to write a book that got closer to how violence really felt and the impact that it had on people and and the people that perpetrate the violence you know quite often the kind of state of mind they're in that, that is just so mindless and and you know, re- relentless or unrelenting, and when I read that, I thought, well, that kind of that that it now makes sense. And I went back and I finished the book and 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 got it. And I thought, well, that's I can understand why people keep calling this a classic because it really does what it sets out to do. But it made me revise. It made me go back and look at the stuff that I'd done in the book, which um, was kind of quite kind of written for thrill-seeking purposes, really. And I don't, I didn't quite get there the whole way, but it, it made me change things to, to, to. There's one chapter in particular that that's become known as the tea bag scene, which if you read the book, you'll get to and you'll understand what it is I'm talking about. And virtually everyone that's come to that scene, without even people that like crime fiction, that have come to it, have said, I just found that almost unbearable and had to kind of flick over it. But I was kind of glad that they had that response because it was meant to be. It was meant to kind of. I, I wasn't. I didn't necessarily set out to shock, but I set out to make it so gruesome that people would think, actually, I, I'm. I don't. I'm not enjoying this. I want to just go on to the next bit, really. So that was another. That was the third kind of key moment in terms of the, the how the book was shaped. Really, was reading the Cormac McCarthy book because, there, as you say, it, there is a kind of generic violence in some thrillers where it is it is almost comic book isn't it it's yes. just it's just hoodlums firing at each other yeah. but what that scene does is it, well it, it really brought me up short and you think this is a person involved in something where she's way out of her depth and didn't ask to be involved in it and she's caught up in something that's 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 real and really nasty mm. well I, I, again because i grew up in i moved down to london in, in 1980 and sort of you know spent the last couple of years of my teens and in early 20s in, in London, there was always a kind of underlying threat because the IRA had a bombing campaign going on at the time and there was still a lot of problems in, in Northern Ireland. And you were always aware of it when you came into London, but I never understood what it was all about. So I did a lot of background reading into... Uh, into I read um, Bandit Country and Ten Men Dead and um, The Killing Rage and... And and Peter Taylor's written a, a couple of great books, um, one on the IRA and one on the Loyalists. And one of the conclusions they all come to at some point in, in the book, they all say there was a kind of madness that took hold, you know. And it, it was there's a, a really harrowing story at the start of the lo- the book on the Loyalists about a, a a Protestant who's best friend, who, you know, he 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 ended up driving him to work one day and, and and killing him in the car, shooting him in the head. 
and uh, you know it, the, the effect that it had on so many people's lives that I, I kind of felt that if because I was dealing with this subject I had to kind of I had to pay kind of attention to that and 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 not just use it as a means to an end for the book I wanted to actually kind of uh, try and get across some of the the, the uh, terrible sadness that came with all the, the, the problems that happened in Ireland and that's why uh, again uh, initially I had a happy ending in the book I, I felt I would be doing it a disservice if I kept the happy ending in I thought I have to kind of change that and make it a little bit more along the lines of Cormac McCarthy is actually how this is probably how it would work out really and although it's kind of as dramatized really but it, um, it was definitely at the back of my mind when I was writing it I thought I've got I think I've got to try and be a little bit more make the ending more how it would be um, if that makes sense and, and how, how I was thinking Danny Maguire who's one of your main characters is a Republican sympathizer but doesn't actually join up and has his own personal reasons mixed in for why he why he's a killer and I thought if he'd been an IRA member it would have been a different wouldn't it I think because he'd have been taking instructions down the hierarchy and it would have been you know it wouldn't really have been possible to have the story if he'd been a, a rank and file or even a, a highly placed IRA member well I, I think so because I think I think when it's a very emotive subject and still is you know it's in the news even just in the last few days about you know problems flaring, flaring up and, and growing up in, in Glasgow as well I, I the sectarianism and stuff that goes on in Glasgow is 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 just as bad. So I'm very aware of of people's feelings. You know, people are very raw and sensitive about it. So you've got to be very careful. And I thought if I if if he was a rank and file member of the IRA, I think a lot of people would instantly have no sympathy for him, really. But um, early on in the book, he says that one of the reasons he cites for not becoming a member of the IRA was that it was too crude a method for achieving the aims he felt. Even though he's a killer, you know, he's become radicalised in a way because of what happened to his brother, not because of what the political situation was in Northern Ireland. You know, that's what turned him into the person he is, trying to seek revenge for his brother's death. And I thought if I can if I can pull that off, then people will sympathise with him because he's not... It was very difficult not to take a line, you know, and, and be heavily weighted in favour of one organisation over the other, you know, between the Republicans and the Loyalists and stuff. So it was, it was quite a fine line to try and mm. tread. And I think, and uh, um, <clears throat> everyone kind of gets their comeuppance. So I, I hope that I've pulled that off. You know, I'm sure there'll be people that'll be on either side that'll feel aggrieved by it in some way. But I've tried my best to to make sure everyone gets their fair share of the <laughs> their fair share of the uh, the violence I think and the, the title John is an allusion to a passage in the gospel about forgiveness where Christ is recommending forgiving 70 times 7 not just 7 times mm. but as you've just alluded to revenge and retribution really are the drivers in this book aren't they because mm. there are so many people who are out to be avenged on other people for, mm. for past past wrongs mm. Yes, um, the, the the title the title came quite e- quite easily actually. It was one of these things where I heard, again I think I heard it on the radio and I thought, my goodness, that's exactly that's exactly what this book is about. Hopefully, on top of or underneath the, the thriller aspect of it, it's about what point you reach where ultimately someone says, you know what, that I just never again are you coming anywhere near me or I can't forgive you for that. And it seems to me that people, you know, human beings. 
capacity for for um, forgiveness is limitless. It's the things that people do to each other and the horrors that go on, and and people still are willing to accept them and and forgive them is is astonishing. It's an astonishing thing. So so because of the things that happen in the book, um, I thought that's a quite a, that would be a fitting title for it. Um, now, why Tuscaloosa in Alabama? What, what, what took you there, or what takes the characters there? Well, Tuscaloosa's where uh, Finn O'Hanlon goes to hide out, and there was a few things. I was kind of scanning the map of America and looking for somewhere that wasn't on the tourist trail. Because he's in hiding, he doesn't want to go somewhere that, you know, like New York, where there's loads of connections with Ireland, and Los Angeles, there's so much through traffic and tourism and stuff, and it would be very easy to be spotted. So it was somewhere that wasn't on the kind of normal flight path. And as I was scanning the map, I saw the, I saw the word Tuscaloosa, and just seeing it, <laughs> it, it makes you feel good. Try it, just say it a few times, and you kind of feel good. Tuscaloosa, it's just got a nice kind of, just trips off your tongue. And when I started looking into Tuscaloosa and the surrounding areas and stuff like that, I thought oh, this is the perfect place for him to to kind of more or less go unnoticed. And did, and did you visit there? Well, I struggled over there, which is my own word for strolling around on Google. <laughs> um, Watching the tumbleweed go by. Yeah, I, you, I discovered... Um, I had actually written most of it. I'd not, uh, at the start, I'd written a lot of the chapters in Tuscaloosa from my imagination and then someone said, oh, you should go and, you know, that like you can, on Google Maps, you can walk around and stuff. Mm. And once I discovered that, it changed the, the whole kind of landscape for me because you, there's a, have you ever done, walked around on Google? Yes, um, not, not in Tuscaloosa. <laughs> and the, yeah, there's just this little yellow man yes. at the top and you can drag him onto the map yeah. and walk around, have a stroll around. So I, I started walking around Tuscaloosa and the main centre and, and Cottondale as well, which is just outside Tuscaloosa. And it, it, it completely transformed the way I, I, you know, as I say, the landscape, the way I wrote about it. So it's it's my own. I'm claiming this word for myself, struggling when you go for a stroll on Google. <laughs> Now, you mentioned, John, at the beginning about the dialogue coming comparatively easy, but again, you set yourself quite a challenge because you've got lots of different voices. You know, you've got the Irish voices, you've got a whole range of different American voices. How did how did you, because the, the dialogue was one of the, the, you know, the pleasures of the book for me, how, and it, it rang very true, and, you know, as far as, as, far as I know, it, it, it convinced me. Mm. So how did, you, how did you work on that? Um, well, the American stuff, I, th- I suppose, was quite easy, really, just be- because so much of our culture is dominated by the American culture, you know, especially in film and television. I actually, weirdly enough, found that the easiest to write, the, the American stuff. As far as Northern Ireland's concerned, I've been there a lot since I was about 18. I've been going back and forward quite a lot, and all my friends in, in um, the UK are from Northern Ireland and from Newry and stuff like that, so... If ever I get stuck on certain phrases, I would just call them and have a chat. And sure enough, one of them would say something that would I think, well, that's that's the way I should be right. I should put, jot that down. I, I didn't find that too hard. The surprising thing was the American thing came was the the easiest for me. I, I think that's just having years of being saturated with American culture for all these years. Mm-hmm. And I mean, some of it, some of it, I'm a fan of Elmore Leonard's, and some of it seemed to have the snap and crackle of, of Elmore Leonard's dialogue. It had that sort of sass about it. Well, I'm a huge fan of Elmore Leonard's. Um, I've, I've been buying Elmore Leonard since he was £4.99, you know, <laughs> in those good old days. And I've had Elmore in the bath with me, he's been on holiday with me, I've been to bed with Elmore Leonard. 
I love Elmore Leonard. I, I kind of doffed my cap to him a few times in the book because one of the places, and again, this was just a coincidence, really, that there's two characters in the book, Kulo Conrado and Vincent Lee Kroll, and where they meet is in a correctional centre that's just out in, in Alabama, and it's actually called the Elmore Correctional Centre, so I thought, oh, this just couldn't be better. And also when uh, Danny Maguire uh, is travelling from Northern Ireland across to the States, the false passport that he goes under is Leonard, so is Mr. Leonard. So I've kind of doffed my cap to Elmore a few times in there. If I ever get stuck with the American passages, I'd just pick up an Elmore Leonard book and read, you know, like one page, and it would kind of click me straight back into that kind of that way of thinking. Yeah. And it, it, it struck me there's a, there's a pair of drug dealers called Ardle and Hud in the book, and it struck me that Elmore Leonard would not be ashamed to to claim ownership of them. They're, 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 they're a really funny pair, and they kind of alleviate what could otherwise become just too intense. They, mm. they, they allow the atmosphere sometimes to, to be a bit lighter. Yeah, well, I'll take that as a compliment. Well, it's uh, meant as a compliment. <laughs> um, <clears throat> yeah, Ardle and Hud, I, I got a letter from my agent, actually, uh, who just read the book a couple of days ago, and he said, if Ardle and Hud ever come over to Great Britain, I'm going to offer them a job. <laughs> and but you you want them on your team, don't you? Basically, whatever you're doing, you whatever want you're up to, you want Ardle and Hud behind you because the, and they were great fun to to write. As the book was drawn to a close, I thought I can't. I've got to have them survive just in case there's a there's any kind of follow up to this because I just loved spending time with them, you know. And I know I've, I, I've heard. This is one of the other kind of things about this voyage of discovery. I've heard writers talking about, you know, a, a book reaches a kind of critical mass and then it starts to write itself. And I always wondered what that, I always what what they meant by that or how that manifested itself. And also, them talking about characters that they loved being with and and I think, but it's come out of your head. So how how does that work? And going through this process now, I, I completely understand. I remember the, the moment when going down to write and thinking, well. I can't think of anything new today, but there's so much there that I need to edit and work on. And then if that happens, this has to happen. And, and suddenly it kind of takes on its own life and starts to write itself, as it were. Uh, um, I remember that feeling of thinking, oh, this is what people are talking about. And with those characters, Ardell and Hud, I, I, it was the same thing. Every time I knew they were in the chapter, I was, I was thinking, oh, I can't wait to write these guys down and, and get them chatting to each other. You know? John Gordon Sinclair, 70 times 7 is out now in hardback. For more information, go to faber.co.uk. That's all for this edition of the Faber podcast, but I'll be back again soon with another programme. You can make sure you never miss the programme by subscribing to it on iTunes. It's free, quick and easy. Go to iTunes and type Faber in the search box on the podcast page, and a subscription is just a couple of clicks away. Until next time, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye.